The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. All right. We'll keep going. All right, so this high schoolers camp, and on the high schoolers camp, as I said, we had a little chapel at the top of a hill, a compulsory leaders meeting, and a voluntary campers meeting. As I said, about 100 high school age campers. And and I still remember so vividly on this particular night, we went to our leaders' prayer meeting, and it was the normal prayer meeting, I think it was about 15 minutes long, there was earnest prayer for the night's meeting, and straight after it there was the usual kind of jovial talk and poking fun at one another as we began to walk our way up to the chapel. I was at the back of the group of leaders and, and suddenly everyone just stopped. And word sort of filtered its way back and they said, Sam, Sam, come up here. Come up. So I sort of walked my way up through the group of leaders and, and I stopped because inside the chapel, I think there was probably about 95 high school age kids had turned up for a voluntary prayer meeting run by themselves. And they were in a big circle and some were laying some were sitting, some were standing. And all of them were singing Awesome God over and over and over again. And most of them were bawling their eyes out, sobbing as they sang Awesome God again and again and again. And it was obvious to me And every one of us standing outside the hall that God had shown up. Now, he's always with us, isn't he? We can never be away from the presence of God. But there are those special occasions when God chooses to reveal a little more of who he is, those rare and precious moments when God allows us a, a glimpse of his presence. Eventually, we just sort of filtered in and we we gathered around the outside of them and just joined in and began to sing and praise God as well and and unfolded this amazing night of worship. And later on, I was talking to one of the the grade eight girls back in the days when grade eight was the first year of high school. Um, And I just said to her, tell me about what happened. And she said, well, we were just there praying and then someone began to sing And then it felt like the presence of God descended. And she said, and all I felt was a terrible weight of my sin that made me cry. And she said, at the same time, I felt this incredible joy that made me want to sing more. So I sang with all my heart and sobbed with all my soul. Can I tell you, my friends, this is what we call the trauma of the holiness of God the trauma of the holiness of God, because a trauma, it genuinely is. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah this morning, and and most of us are very familiar with Isaiah 53, the, the suffering servant passage of Isaiah, and in many ways Isaiah is probably the most important of the Old Testament prophetic books concerning Jesus, who he is, what he's like, etc. Uh, but if we're going to understand Isaiah and its views of Jesus, we've really got to understand how Isaiah begins his ministry, which is what we find in Isaiah chapter 6. 
So before we begin getting stuck into Isaiah chapter 6, let's give a little bit of historical context for the book. Isaiah prophesied from 739 to 681 BC. We think he was in the role of prophet for roughly 60 years. An incredible amount of time for an intense role. Like, if Jimmy leads this church for 60 years, he'll look rough at the end of it. I'm just, I'm just guessing, right? Um, so, Isaiah, probably 60 years. Just think about it. Think about if you had one pastor, one leader here for 60 years, you would have someone getting married and then you would have their children getting married and then you're going to celebrate the grandchildren of that original couple. Or Think about it, over 60 years of this really strong sense of stability for the nation at that time, right? 60 years with one God-honouring prophet kind of leading the nation spiritually, a really rich, rich time. Now, he was a prophet of the southern kingdom. If you're not familiar, uh, Israel at this time had split into two. We had ten tribes in the north, which was the northern kingdom of Israel, and two tribes in the south, which included Jerusalem, which was the southern kingdom. So, he was a prophet of the southern kingdom. We think he lived in Jerusalem, and he prophesied through the reign of five kings, the last of whom was the evil king Manasseh, who tradition says put him to death. Now, in Isaiah 6.1, you don't sort of need to go there yet, but if you're looking at it, that's fine. In Isaiah 6.1, we're still just giving a little bit of background, it says, in the year King Uzziah died. So, I saw a vision in the year King Uzziah died. Now, Uzziah had reigned for 52 years and he had been one of the good kings of Judah. Now, he failed with pride at the end of his reign, but largely over, you know, multiple generations, he had been a good king who sought, taught the people to follow the Lord. How many Prime Ministers have we had over the last 10 years? Anyone managed to keep count? Um, you know, you need your shoes off to count that one. Um, so, like, and what that creates, of course, is a sense of instability. Can you imagine having a great Prime Minister in Australia, someone we all loved, and they reigned for 52 years? Wouldn't that create a sense of security, a sense of stability for the nation? Somebody who was God-honouring, who was good, and you had them in place for 52 years? So you've got a great uh, national kind of ruler for a long period of time, and then we're going to have Isaiah who reigns, uh, who, sorry, prophesies for 60 years. Um, so we have this incredible sense of a stable nation. Even uh, after Uzziah dies, his son takes over and it says in 2 Chronicles, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his father Uzziah had done. In addition, he didn't enter the Lord's sanctuary, but the people still behaved corruptly. Isn't that interesting? So we've got this great prophet in Isaiah, we've got a great king who reigned for 52 years, uh, and then we've got his son who is honouring the Lord, and yet the people still behaved corruptly. You know, we always want to blame leadership, don't we? Like, if we, if we want to blame what's going on in our country, we, we'll kind of blame who, whoever is in power or we'll blame the school, maybe, the, where we went or blame a teacher for the reason we failed English or whatever it might be or there's always a sense of wanting to blame that higher-up person but, but here we see in the book of 
uh, Isaiah, with the truth of what's going on in the nation is, there's good leadership, but people are still sinful, aren't they? People are still corrupt. And that's what's going on here in the story. Despite great leadership, despite God-honouring leadership, the people are still behaving badly because the people are sinful. It doesn't matter how good our political structures will be in our country, it doesn't matter how good the leader might be, the people, ourselves included, are still sinful, right? It doesn't change. And that was the case here. So in the year Uzziah died, I think it would have been a massive upheaval, right? After a 52-year-long reign, a massive upheaval. What's going to happen next? What's the future of our nation look like? And it's in that year that Isaiah has his vision. So in that year, the year of potential turmoil for the nation, God begins to speak to Isaiah. So it's good for us to get that framework, right? In a place that is facing upheaval, God begins to speak, okay? So that is what's going on, which brings us to Isaiah uh, chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Now, this is up to you. If you want to, read along. Now, I always encourage people to read the Word, or if you choose, you could just close your eyes for a minute, because I do want you to be able to visualise what Isaiah is experiencing. So it's up to you, uh, whatever you're more comfortable with, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost." For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go? Amen. The word of God. So Isaiah sees a vision of the throne room of God. And seated on the throne is Adonai, the the Lord of Lords. I think this is the first glimpse of Jesus in Isaiah. I think this is Jesus on the throne. Now, he is on a throne that is high and lifted up. Now, we get that, don't we? Thrones tend to be elevated. Anyone here ever gone to a castle overseas or something and seen a a traditional historical throne? They're always lifted up, signifying a kind of higher role or a higher presence. So here we have the throne of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His throne is highly lifted up above all thrones to signify the power and majesty of the one who sits on the throne. 
And further signifying this in the mind of Isaiah is the train of his robe. Now, robes, and particularly long ones, signify royalty. Think of wedding dresses. Now, I'll age myself here a little bit, but I remember watching uh, Princess Diana get married on TV. Anyone else with me on that? I should say, who wasn't born? Quite a lot of you. Anyway, uh, anyway, I remember watching that on TV and the length of the train of her dress was simply ridiculous. Uh, if any of you attempted that, uh, you would struggle to probably walk. But the reason it wasn't ridiculous at the time is because it was a royal wedding. It signifies something about the majesty of the occasion. The dress, as I've read, the train of the dress was 25 feet long. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It's crazy. And yet, in the grandeur of the royal setting, it looks appropriate. It looks grand. It looks majestic. So, robes signify... The fact of the, the royalty, the power, the influence, the prestige, all of those things. And so Isaiah looks and he sees this uh, throne that's lifted up and the one on the throne is wearing a robe and the train of the robe, it says, fills the temple. The train of the robe spills down and fills the floor, fills the walls, it's piled up high. The robe, it, it almost feels like the train is endless because of the one who's wearing it, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has the ultimate robe signifying his authority. In short, this is simply the most royal scene that you can ever imagine. Whatever your sort of view of royalty is, maybe it's the Princess Diaries, I don't know. Whatever it is, you need to multiply that a lot to get the majesty of what Isaiah is seeing. Then we're going to add in some other things. Above him are the seraphim, six winged angels. They fly with two wings. With two wings, they cover their feet. Why? Well, you think of Moses at the burning bush. See, shoes are what you walk around with and collect dirt. Shoes are in contact with the profane things of the ground where animals go to the toilet, etc., etc. And so Moses had to take off his shoes at the burning bush because he stood on holy ground. And these angels have to cover their feet because their feet are what come in contact with the ground. And so with two wings, they cover their feet in the presence of the holy God, right? Anyone taking the shoes off? Come on. Um, not really. Uh, but anyway... That's, uh, that's why their feet are covered, because it signifies that anything that is profane, anything that is dirty, cannot exist in the presence of the one seated on the throne. So their feet are covered. Two wings cover their face because they cannot look upon the unveiled holiness of God. More radiant than the sun. And so these angels are flying with their feet covered, covering their, their touching of the earth and wings covering their face because they cannot look upon Jesus in his full brilliance, in his radiant, holy, glory nature. They cannot look. God who spoke the universe into being, God whose power is limitless, God who demands perfection, can you picture yourself in that room? 
Can you picture yourself being transported into that place? Can you picture yourself bringing sin into that room? We too often, I think, have a small view of Jesus. Yes, he is our friend. Yes, he calls us uh, children of God. Yes, he died to pay the penalty of our sin, but we must also remember this is who Jesus is. This is Jesus unveiled. This is Jesus in his glory. We've got to remember that. When we sit and worship this morning, this is who we're worshipping. The awe keeps building because not only do we have this incredible visual image of the throne room of God, it's also incredibly loud because those seraphim are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, ancients didn't use underlining and italics like we do today. They used repetition. So Jesus, you would know, sometimes prefaced what he was saying with, truly, truly, which simply meant, listen up, pay attention. Whenever you read truly, truly, everything Jesus said is important, but it's the ancient's way of saying, this is really important, listen up, lean forward right now. So truly, truly, well, right here, we have holy, holy, holy. Do you know the threefold repetition is only used twice in all of Scripture? If you hear the threefold repetition, you know something very important is being said. Holy, holy, holy. What is holiness? Why is it so important? Why is it the threefold repetition? Well, holiness means to be set apart, it's the otherness of God, His exaltedness. He is God alone. He is above all. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the I am. He is God. He is Lord of Lord, King of Kings. There is no other like Him. Nothing can be compared to Him. He is above all. He is holy, holy, holy. And furthermore, we see that God's holiness is a part of all His other attributes. God's love is a holy love. It's a set-apart love. It's a, it's a different love. It's a greater love. It's a more pure love. So God's holy love, His justice is a holy justice. It's, it's greater than any other justice we know. It's set-apart. It's more pure. His grace is a holy grace. Do you get what I'm saying? His holiness is a part of every other attribute of God. He is holy, holy, holy. He is entirely other and set apart. His glory is above all, and all of his attributes are holy. The I am, the holy one, what would it be like to enter into his throne room? The radiance of his glory, the train of his robe, the noise of the angels crying out. Do you know what the other threefold repetition is? I said there's only two. Woe, woe, woe. In Revelation 8, when God pours out his anger on the earth. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the holy, holy, 
holy God. Right? What a tension the scripture creates for us. Back to our passage, and as they declare God's holiness in the temple, the foundations, it say, shake and smoke filled the room. The, the holiness of God is not declared timidly, but it reverberates in the throne room. Anyone here ever been close to a big stack speaker at a concert and you can actually feel it in your chest, kind of vibrates? Well, this is like that, but multiplied out, the entire room is shaking with the cry of the holiness of God. And so Isaiah is sitting there now in the throne room of God, looking at the one on the throne who the train of his robe fills the temple. The angels are declaring the holiness of God and his chest is reverberating with the cry of God's holiness. Just picture it for a moment. How do you see yourself in that room? God chose you and took you to that place. How do you picture yourself? Like a tourist? Oh, wow, check that out. That's a long robe. No, I don't think so. What was Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an un people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, some translations, I think, are, are better here because what they actually say here is, woe is me, for I am undone, is what some of the translations say. Woe is me, for I am undone. You see, to be in the presence of God is for all of those false images that you build up about yourself and that you portray to one another is to be exposed fully. There is no false image before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no pretending to be someone you're not. There's no putting on a brave face. There's no treating, treating someone falsely who you talk about behind their back. None of that exists when you come into the presence of God. All of your self-justification, all of your blaming other people, all of your blaming other leaders, all of your blaming, 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 blaming is undone before the presence of God. There is you, your sinfulness, and the holy, holy, holy God. And that is what Isaiah experiences. Behold, I am undone. Every lie, every cover-up, every scheme, every self-interested decision, exposed fully. There is no facade left in his presence. I am undone. For I have unclean lips in the mid middle of a people of unclean lips. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and Isaiah knows that he is truly, deeply, irrevocably unclean before the holy God. Church, here's what I want to really challenge you with. There is no other way to become a Christian than through the same experience of Isaiah. I don't mean necessarily that you get transported to that throne room, but you must first come through an understanding of how desperately wicked and sinful you are before you can understand the salvation that Christ offers. Right? You must come to a place of knowing 
that you are condemned, that you are undone because you are a person of unclean lips. Right? That is the only way to become a Christian. If you've never come through that experience, then you're going to church and you're doing those things, but you don't know who he is. You first must understand your deep sinfulness before you can understand what Christ has done to redeem you from sin. I ask you, have you ever pronounced, woe am I, for I am unclean. That's where the beginning of salvation happens. Woe am I. So that is Isaiah's position, and here's the thing that we have to understand. Isaiah can do nothing to change his situation. He's in the presence of the holy God. He's witnessing, his chest is reverberating with the cries of God's holiness, and he is there knowing that he is sinful. And let me ask you, what can Isaiah do about it? Apologize? He's got nothing. He's in the same state as you and I with our sinfulness before our holy God. There is nothing we can do. Now, he has to trust God. It's no different from you and I that God took the initiative, that God sent Jesus to pay the penalty of your sin while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's God's act to save. He sent his son to pay the penalty of your sin. When you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are saved because of his sacrifice. It is God's work from first to last. All right, there's nothing we can do. And that is Isaiah's situation. So how does our passage unfold? God has brought him to this place. So what happens? Note what our passage said. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Who acted? God did. God sent the seraphim to atone for Isaiah's sin. God is the one who must deal with his sin. So the seraphim takes a, a white hot coal from the altar. How do we know it's really hot? Note what it says, that the seraphim actually takes it with tongs. I just love that image. The seraphim's just like, no, I'm not touching that. So he gets tongs this white-hot coal, and he flies over to Isaiah and he takes that white-hot coal and burns it into Isaiah's mouth. That's not pleasant, is it? Think about that for a second. Blisters, burning, pain, this is what Isaiah feels. The ancients knew about the purification of fire. They knew that you could apply it to wounds and treat them for uh, uh, infection. They knew that metal was made pure by heating it up, by purifying it through fire. And this is what we have symbolized here in Isaiah. He was a man of unclean lips. And Isaiah had applied to him a representative act of the burning purity of the holiness of God taking away his sin. 
Right? That is what's happening in this picture. Now, ultimately, Jesus paid the penalty of the sin of Isaiah. Right? When Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty of the sin of the Old Testament saints and of the new. Ultimately, it is paid for by Jesus. But we have an image here for Isaiah, an understanding of the holy, purifying fire of God. So Isaiah felt the holiness of God and cried out, woe is me, and then God acts in grace to purify him, to take away his sin. And then in verse 8, God speaks and asks, who will go and be my spokesman? Who will speak on my behalf? And Isaiah, through blistered lips, but with a heart now made whole, says, here I am, send me. Here's the change in Isaiah that we have to see. Behold, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in the, the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. I've got nothing, every lie exposed, every excuse I've offered, it's all exposed. And now God acts to purify Isaiah and he's now filled with the overwhelming joy of the grace of God who takes away sin and now Isaiah can't wait to proclaim that message to others. The fire that has touched his lips and brought him to purity is now a fire in his heart that longs to tell others of the glory of God. That's what he's experienced. That's the transformation that he's had. A messenger of the good news has to feel the burning holiness of God before they're fit to proclaim the message. You have to feel the burning presence of God. For me, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. I was 18 years of age when I heard the gospel for the first time. And I went on Christian schoolies week um, because I was told you play lots of sport there and, you know, that seemed like it was something you could do. Some Christian friends invited me. And I heard the gospel proclaimed there for the first time. And on midweek through that camp on a Wednesday night, they had a bush dance and it was just a fun bush dance. It wasn't the Smashing Bumpkins. They didn't exist back then. Um, they had a bush dance, and uh, at that bush dance, I sort of just went off on my own. And I thought about these things I'd heard about Jesus. And in my bold, rash, stupid 18-year-old cockiness, I said, right, oh God... If it's true and you're real, prove it. I dare you. And if you can, then I'll follow you. But I don't expect you will. It's basically my prayer. A little while later, out of nowhere, everyone's having fun, everyone's dancing, me included. I was in a circle, maybe for the heel and toe. And the presence of the holiness of God came upon me. In the middle of this dance, I fell to my knees. I was the big rugby league kind of guy. I fell to my knees and started to sob. People helped me outside. And I was just sobbing. Everyone's like, what's going on? What's going on? And I said, more or less, I'm undone. Suddenly God showed me who I was. Showed me who he was. 
and all I could do was sit on the ground and pour my heart out. I remember saying one thing, my life will never be the same. Because Jesus changes you. His grace meets you in the place of the awareness of your sin. And then you're fit for the message. What's the overall theme of the book of Isaiah? It comes from Isaiah 12 too. He says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That's the theme of Isaiah. Right there, the experience of the holiness of God, of God's redeeming him from his sin, has led to him crying out, He is the God of my salvation, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, my, my joy, my praise, the worship that is on my lips. This is what God has become in my life, is what he is crying out and saying. The strongest theme of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is judgment of sin. Why do you think that is? This is Isaiah's experience. He knows what it is to be sinful. He knows who the holy God is that he worships. And so he spends basically 39 chapters outlining to people that God is holy and you are sinful. Right? This is the outworking of the understanding in Isaiah's life. Do you know, Isaiah refers to God as holy 56 times in the book of Isaiah. More than any other book, Leviticus mentions holiness more, but it's talking about, you know, put this thing aside and it will be treated as holy and da-da-da-da. But referring to God as holy, Isaiah does the most. His understanding is God is a holy God. Isaiah knew what it was to be brought into the presence of God and knew what it was to be undone. To know his sin is revealed by the presence of God. To then experience God taking initiative to heal him. And then Isaiah begins to speak the message of salvation. Church, you and I must be like Isaiah. To know your sin truly before the holiness of God to feel the pain of it when he reveals its filthiness to you. Pain that would cause you to flee, to run, to cower in his presence, but then to know the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. To know that the Holy One that Isaiah saw in his vision, the one on the throne, the one with the robe, the one who was crying out, holy, 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 that one did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but came to earth, took on the flesh, and died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin. Isn't that incredible? The vision of that one Isaiah sees, he's the one who was born of the Virgin Mary. Right? God stepped down to live the life that we can't. And when you know these things to be true, when you've experienced these things to be true, you cannot help but say, you couldn't fight it but say, I am here, send me. That's Isaiah's response. I will speak your good news. 
I will condemn sin where I find it, but I will speak the good news of Jesus. I will go into my workplace. I will go into my school. I will pursue my hobby as one who has felt the searing pain of God's holiness, felt the loving cleanse of His grace, and I will tell that good news to everyone in my sphere. Here I am. Send me. Now, you're not Isaiah. Isaiah longed for what you have. Right? You're not Isaiah. Isaiah longed for what you have. He felt the burning coal blister his mouth. Mouth, you've seen the sun die for you, be resurrected and offer you life in his name. Isaiah felt the pain of the coal and you've seen the grace of Jesus. If Isaiah could respond to, here I am, send me to a burning coal, what's our response to God sending his son? Right? Here I am, send me. All around you, right here in Caloundra, there are people. For them to come into the holy, holy, holy presence of God is impossible because they carry the weight of their sin. But through the good news, through the salvation that Christ offers, they will be made holy and radiant and one day see him face to face. That's the good news. That's the message that should be on our hearts. Church, that's what I just want to pray, that we experience, understand who God really is and be willing to share that good news message of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.